Beat Oracle. speeches later, but this first hour we'll just be playing music, hip-hop and electronic music. That's right. You're tuned into the Beat Oracle. Stick around. It's going to be two hours of fun. This is KCSB.
undercurrents One shark, one piranha Take the force of the devil to hold us back The MCM produce a partnership on the attack Paul yeah. creates the beats and I'm the rhyme The music is the ocean and he's the piranha I'm the shark, the blood tracker in the deep Difficult to fathom, mysterious and unique These waters are dangerous, undercurrents will pull you in If you're out for a swim, be aware or be a victim Swim for sure as soon as you see the predators Approaching from the distance cause we're hungry for more Quick, step out of the waters if you wanna live long Break the waves and it's as if The land was never meant for the likes of us Surviving in the depths of the seas Cause it's a must Flowing with a certain technique and agility It's time to unleash our capability Not a attack Just for the thrill React to the scent of blood Hunting a will Fact Taste the blood Go for the kill Now you're trapped Your fate is sealed I hope you're ready for this We ain't been fed for at least about a week It's like we're being starved to death We think but don't speak Dive deeper In search for something to eat But there's nothing but sand and pebbles And plenty of weeds We're being drained Getting weaker by the minute We're strong so we'll survive Until the day the world is finished Playing on absolutely anything that's edible To some we might be dangerous To others we're incredible Sitting at the top of the food chain Waiting in vain Living in pain Hoping to gain And it's the same whatever the waters were in Once upon a time they had fear for the fin Now they fear and respect Swim for cover When they see us approach they protect each other What the piranha begins the shark finishes And all opposition diminishes Not a attack Just for the thrill React to the scent of blood hunting a will Fact Taste the blood go for the kill Now you're trapped Your fate is sealed Come on Come on The shores are hazardous To survive in the seas is miraculous You ain't catching us Hunters on the prowl Intelligent, versatile, wild Picking up the scent of your blood for many miles Agile, swift, clever, slick, calm, cunning, devious, quick A partnership that's hard to comprehend Don't apprehend, flow magnificent Be aware, vigilant, guilty or innocent It makes no difference We're persistent and put up a chase The whole distance consistent As we conquer the depths of the ocean In an instant the calm transforms into commotion Portion, the combined force of a shark and a piranha Is nothing less than poetry in motion Flowing with a certain technique and agility
constant gentlemen are temporary never eat an apple from an orchard that was formerly a cemetery subsidiaries in any lesser than sit and be quiet until i invert the pentagram rack of lamb bethlehem style drained bloodless pagan gods love this suck shrimp cocktail get your girl's hair crimp take her to a yard sale donkey elephant hybrid copy written by disneyland take the turban off put holy water parks and rediscovered sand wait let's tell the truth yeah. we're not holier than thou but holy cow there's people doing stuff god would never allow like guys kissing guys and poor people too there's plenty of jobs find something to do we think abortion is pretty messed up if you don't want a kid then don't be a slut there's plenty of races on god's green planet that doesn't mean you have to breed with them god damn it i got a shirt made by little girl's hands in a little warehouse on a little island i bet she's even got herself a little boyfriend Belt and I'm so damn zen, I'm a drunken stumble. Constantly counting my yen on the counter, you're the cannabis founder of the phantom of the opera, using my power supply to mop a chopper, MC off the top of popper stopper, pop a cherry, vocabulary, so dope in the hopes of humping something, someone, somewhere in my underwear, having an affair with a musical favor. Wool on the VS880, it's a great lady, it's a fate. We can dedicate, we can meet, we can make, can't wait to make a baby and innovate at the base motel with your face and soul in a boxing match. Your soul's not talking back, your girl's not calling back. I'm turning my back on the new jack and my old four track for the poor fact when I feel the door back. Can't afford that, can't avoid that kind of annoyed that was destroyed by the convoy. Tom Sawyer's not a lawyer. Michael Law with a chainsaw with drama grass. Swimming fence builders don't smoke filters. Painting new ports on the wall, always on call. Calling off all units for backup, cause they have to. Chopping it up so easily. Don't have a PC or MTV or HIV or an SUV or an STD or an ACD. My masterpiece, no MasterCard, no Platinum Plus, no Compile, like Game Boy or Angel Dust. Chopping it up so easily. Don't have a PC or MTV or an HIV or an SUV or an STD or an ACD. My masterpiece, no MasterCard, no Platinum Plus, no Compile, like Game Boy or Angel Dust. We're prisoners in a prism, sir. I'm a crossing guard and I'm crossing my heart at an advantage. Adam and Eve managed because he spoke Spanish to the manager of the manger in Bethlehem, New Mexico. Hotel is a sham for the man with an open hand that don't give a damn, but he's been in demand and he always will. When I sign my will and the hallways kill, non believers leaving you brainwashed. Get your brain tossed in the washing machine at the laundry mat where I sat and waited for the next available apparatus. I cure the clothes of being death the fastest at summer camp. There's classes you can change your fate for the rebate. Become a robot in sweatshop. Go get work for free. Source of reforcing me to fly jet plane just to explain that I can't explain. But my pants are saying I'm too excited, Buddha invited me to meditate and educate all the predators' brains with an intimate sentiment with a feather range fly outlook in Calabasas, wearing sunglasses, throwing hourglasses, the speed of life. I need a kite to be fly in this world of cockroaches and sock brokers. Chopping it up so easily, don't have a PC or MTV or HIV or an SUV or an STD or an ACD by Master B, no MasterCard, no Platinum Plus, no Compile, Game Boy or Angel Dust. Chopping it up so easily, don't have a PC or MTV or HIV or an SUV or an STD or any CD by Master B, no MasterCard, no Platinum Plus, no Compile, Game Boy or Angel Dust. 
Soothing sounds of Joyo Velarde off the quantum spectrum. The track was called People Like Me. Before that was Radio Inactive and Anti MC. Chop Chop off of Free Kamal. That one's out on Mush. Before that, we heard from Grand Buffet. Americus Religious Right Rock, the name of the track. It's off of Five Years of Fireworks. A little bit of Know Thy Enemy there. Mark being Blade before that, One Shark, One Piranha, off of The Unknown. Heard Sun Ra, Interstellar, Low Ways. That one's out on De- on Enya. The name of the album is Destination Unknown. Super Collider was before that, Close Tales, off of Raw Digits. Before that we heard from the T5 Soul Sessions of the Holotronics, Shorty and Rio, the name of the track. Before that, off of the Cream Separates mix by Darren Emerson, we heard Onero doing a track called Warrior. We started the show off with the Juan McLean. Less Than Human was the name of that one. Off of the DFA compilation, number two. We've still got a bunch of time left in our show, so if you want to give us a shout-out, Tell us some music you'd like to hear. 893-2424 is our number here in the studio. That's right. Be sure to stick around for the rightfully elected president of 2000 giving quite the speech in the second hour here on the Beat Oracle.
listening to the beat oracle been listening to a lot of music in the mix there we heard encore doing a track called coochie coo after that was stone bridge doing jazzy john's dub off of hex statics listen and learn release on ninja tune Boards of Canada after that from the Warp 10 Plus 3 
compilation. An Eagle in Your Mind, the name of the track. That one remixed by the push button objects. Just there we heard from Manual off of their more album Ascend. Keeps Coming Back is the name of the track. Right now we've got the hopefully soothing sounds of global communication. This is 939 from the album 7614. We're hoping these healing vibrations are going up north to Bridget. You feeling that? Uh, Indeed. So we're going to get some legal stuff out of the way, uh, and the second hour will be dedicated to a speech. That's right. Speech was given yesterday? I believe so, yeah. Martin yeah. Luther King Day. Uh, as always, you can check us out on the web, beatoracle.net. Probably won't be announcing a playlist for the next hour, so if you're curious about the stuff we're playing underneath, uh, that playlist will be up on the website. Thanks for tuning in, and uh, I hope you enjoy this. across the street is involved in al-Qaeda-like activity, but wonder what's in it for you to call the FBI? Well, the Department of Homeland Security is proud to present the War on Terror Megamix. For every member of a terrorist organization you reveal, the Department of Homeland Security will send you this great compilation CD featuring hits from the 70s and 80s, like this great hit from The Who. Or how about this great song from the 80s? That's right, all of these classic hits can be yours. It doesn't matter if they're guilty or innocent. If someone you know is acting strangely, you could be listening to songs like this. or even this great one-hit wonder. To get this great compilation, all we need is a suspicious party's address, ethnic background, hair, blood, or urine sample, the Middle East-based terrorist group you suspect they are involved in, and $4 for shipping and handling. And there's even a track for the kids. Are the people in your neighborhood, in your neighborhood, in your neighborhood? Say, who? Because I'm an old 
The War on Terror Megamix can be yours right now for just doing your patriotic duty. Inform and order today. citizens to put aside partisan differences and so far as it is possible to do so and join with us in demanding that our constitution be defended and preserved it is appropriate that we make this appeal on the day our nation has set aside to honor the life and legacy of dr martin luther king jr who challenged america to breathe new life into our oldest values by extending its promise to all of our people and on this particular Martin Luther King Day it is especially important to recall for that for the last several years of his life Dr. King was illegally wiretapped one of hundreds of thousands of Americans whose private communications were intercepted by the US government during that period the FBI privately labeled King the and I quote, the most dangerous and effective Negro leader in the country and vowed to, again I quote, take him off his pedestal. The government even attempted to destroy his marriage and tried to blackmail him into committing suicide. This campaign continued until Dr. King's murder. The discovery that the FBI conducted this long-running and extensive campaign of secret electronic surveillance designed to infiltrate the inner workings of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference and to learn the most intimate details of Dr. King's life was instrumental in helping to convince Congress to enact restrictions on wiretapping. And one result was the Foreign Intelligence and Surveillance Act, often called FISA, which was enacted expressly to ensure that foreign intelligence surveillance would be presented to an impartial judge to verify that there was indeed a sufficient cause for the surveillance. It included ample flexibility and an ability for the executive to move with as much speed as the executive desired. I voted for that law during my first term in Congress and for almost 30 years, the system has proven a valuable and workable means of affording a level of protection for American citizens while permitting foreign surveillance to continue whenever it is necessary. And yet, just one month ago, Americans awoke to the shocking news that in spite of this long settled law, the executive branch 
has been secretly spying on large numbers of Americans for the last four years and eavesdropping on, and I quote the report, large volumes of telephone calls, email messages, and other internet traffic inside the United States. The New York Times reported that the president decided to launch this massive eavesdropping program without search warrants or any new laws that would permit domestic intelligence collection. During the period when this eavesdropping was still secret, the president seemed to go out of his way to reassure the American people on more than one occasion that, of course, judicial permission is required for any government spying on American citizens and that, of course, these constitutional safeguards were still in place. But surprisingly, the president's soothing statements turned out to be false. Moreover, as soon as this massive domestic spying program was uncovered by the press, the president not only confirmed the story was true, but in the next breath declared that he has no intention of stopping or bringing these wholesale invasions of privacy to an end. At present, we still have much to learn about the NSA's domestic surveillance. What we do know about this pervasive wiretapping virtually compels the conclusion that the President of the United States has been breaking the law repeatedly and insistently. A president, a president who breaks the law is a threat to the very structure of our government. Our founding fathers were adamant that they had established a government of laws and not men. They recognized that the structure of government they had enshrined in our Constitution, our system of checks and balances, was designed with a central purpose of ensuring that it would govern through the rule of law. As John Adams said, the executive shall never exercise the legislative and judicial powers or either of them to the end that it may be a government of laws and not of men. An executive who arrogates to himself the power to ignore the legitimate legislative directives of the Congress or to act free of the check of the judiciary becomes the central threat that the founders sought to nullify in the Constitution. An all-powerful executive, too reminiscent of the king from whom they had broken free. In the words of James Madison, the accumulation of all powers, legislative, executive, and judiciary in the same hands, whether of one, a few, or many, and whether hereditary, self-appointed, or elective, may justly be pronounced the very definition of tyranny. Thomas Paine, whose pamphlet on common sense ignited the American Revolution, succinctly described America's alternative. Here, he said, we intended to make certain that in his phrase, the law is king. Vigilant adherence to the rule of law 
actually strengthens our democracy, of course, and strengthens America. It ensures that those who govern us operate within our constitutional structure, which means that our democratic institutions play their indispensable role in shaping policy and determining the direction of our nation. It means that the people of this nation ultimately determine its course and not executive officials operating in secret without constraint under the rule of law. And make no mistake, the rule of law makes us stronger by ensuring that decisions will be tested, studied, reviewed, and examined through the normal processes of government that are designed to improve policy and avoid error. And the knowledge that they will be reviewed prevents overreaching and checks the accretion to power. A commitment to openness, truthfulness, and accountability helps our country avoid many serious mistakes that we would otherwise make. Recently, for example, we learned from just declassified documents after almost 40 years that the Gulf of Tonkin resolution, which authorized the tragic Vietnam War, was actually based on false information. And we now know that the decision by Congress to authorize the Iraq War 38 years later was also based on false information. Now, the point is that America would have been better off knowing the truth and avoiding both of these colossal mistakes in our history. And that is the reason why following the rule of law makes us safer, not more vulnerable. The President and I agree on one thing, the threat from terrorism is all too real. There is simply no question that we continue to face new challenges in the wake of the attack on September 11th, and we must be ever vigilant in protecting our citizens from harm. Where we disagree is on the proposition that we have to break the law or sacrifice our system of government in order to protect Americans from terrorism, when in fact doing so would make us weaker and more vulnerable. And remember that once violated, the rule of law is itself in danger. Unless stopped, lawlessness grows. The greater the power of the executive grows, the more difficult it becomes for the other branches to perform their constitutional roles. As the executive acts outside its constitutionally prescribed role and is able to control access to information that would expose its mistakes and reveal errors. It becomes increasingly difficult for the other branches to police its activities. And once that ability is lost, democracy itself is threatened and we do become a government of men and not laws. The president's men have minced words about America's laws. The Attorney General, for example, openly conceded that the kind of surveillance in his phrase that we now know they have been conducting does require a court order unless authorized by statute. The Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act self-evidently does not authorize what the NSA has been doing, and no one inside or outside the administration claims that it does. 
The administration claims instead that the surveillance was implicitly authorized when Congress voted to use force against those who attacked us on September 11th. But this argument simply does not hold any water. Without getting into the legal intricacies, it faces a number of embarrassing facts. First, another admission by the Attorney General. He concedes that the administration knew that the NSA project was prohibited by existing law and that that is why they consulted with some members of Congress about the possibility of changing the statute. General Gonzalez says that they were told by the members of Congress consulted that this would probably not be possible. And so they decided not to make the request. So how can they now argue that the authorization for the use of military force somehow implicitly authorized it all along? Indeed, when the authorization was being debated, the administration did in fact seek to have language inserted in it that would have authorized them to use military force domestically and the Congress refused to agree. Senator Ted Stevens and Representative Jim McGovern, among others, made clear statements during the debate on the floor of the House and Senate respectively clearly stating that that authorization did not operate domestically and there is no assertion to the contrary. When President Bush failed to convince Congress to give him the power he wanted when this measure was passed, he secretly assumed that power anyway, as if congressional authorization was a useless bother. But as Justice Frankfurter once wrote, to find authority so explicitly withheld is not merely to disregard in a particular instance the clear will of Congress. It is to disrespect the whole legislative process and the constitutional division of authority between the President and the Congress. This is precisely, this is precisely the disrespect for the law that the Supreme Court struck down in the steel seizure case during the Korean War. It is this same disrespect for America's Constitution which has now brought our Republic to the brink of a dangerous breach in the fabric of the Constitution. And the disrespect embodied in these apparent mass violations of the law is part of a larger pattern of seeming indifference to the Constitution that is deeply troubling to millions of Americans in both political parties. For example, as you know, the President has also declared that he has a heretofore unrecognized inherent power to seize and imprison any American citizen that he alone determines to be a threat to our nation. And that notwithstanding his American citizenship, that person in prison has no right to talk with a lawyer, even if he wants to argue 
that the president or his appointees have made a mistake and imprisoned the wrong person. The president claims that he can imprison that American citizen, any American citizen he chooses, indefinitely for the rest of his life without even an arrest warrant, without notifying them of what charges have been filed against them, without even informing their families that they have been imprisoned. No such right exists in America that you and I know and love. It is foreign to our Constitution. It must be rejected. At the same time, the executive branch has also claimed a previously unrecognized authority to mistreat prisoners in its custody in ways that plainly constitute torture and have plainly constituted torture in a widespread pattern that has been extensively documented in U.S. facilities located in several countries around the world. Over a hundred of these captives have reportedly died while being tortured by executive branch interrogators. Many more have been broken and humiliated. And in the notorious Abu Ghraib prison, investigators who documented the pattern of torture estimated that more than 90% of the victims were completely innocent of any criminal charges whatsoever. This is a shameful exercise of power that overturns a set of principles that our nation has observed since General George Washington first enunciated them during our Revolutionary War. They have been observed by every president since then until now. They violate the Geneva Conventions, the International Convention Against Torture, and our own laws against torture. The president has also claimed he has the authority to kidnap individuals on the streets of foreign cities and deliver them for imprisonment and interrogation on our behalf by autocratic regimes in nations that are infamous for the cruelty of their techniques for torture. Some of our traditional allies have been deeply shocked by these new and uncharacteristic patterns on the part of America. For example, the British ambassador to Uzbekistan, one of those nations with the worst reputations for torture in its prisons, registered a complaint to his home office about the cruelty and senselessness of the new U.S. practice that he witnessed. This material we're getting is useless, he wrote, and then he continued with this, we are selling our souls for dross. It is in fact positively harmful. Can it be true that any president really has such powers under our Constitution? If the answer is yes, then under the theory by which these acts are committed, are there any acts that can on their face be prohibited? If the president has the inherent authority to eavesdrop on American citizens without a warrant, imprison American citizens on his own declaration, kidnap and torture, then what can't he do? The dean of Yale Law School, Harold Coe, said after analyzing the executive branch's extravagant claims of these 
previously unrecognized powers, and I quote Dean Cope, the president has commander-in-chief power to commit torture. He has the power to commit genocide, to sanction slavery, to, mo to promote apartheid, to license summary execution. The fact that our normal American safeguards have thus far failed to contain this unprecedented expansion of executive power is itself deeply troubling. This failure is due in part to the fact that the executive branch has followed a determined strategy of, of obfuscating, delaying, withholding information, appearing to yield but then refusing to do so, and dissembling in order to frustrate the efforts of the legislative and judicial branches to restore a healthy constitutional balance. For example, after appearing to support legislation sponsored by Senator John McCain to stop the continuation of torture, the president declared in the act of signing the bill that he reserved the right not to comply with it. Similarly, the executive branch claimed that it could unilaterally imprison American citizens without giving them access to review by any tribunal. And when the Supreme Court disagreed, the president then engaged in legal maneuvers designed to prevent the court from providing any meaningful content to the rights of the citizens affected. A conservative jurist on the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals wrote that the executive branch's handling of one such case seemed to involve the sudden abandonment of principle, and I quote him, at substantial cost to the government's credibility before the courts. As a result of this unprecedented claim of new unilateral power, the executive branch has now put our constitutional design at grave risk. The stakes for America's dem democracy are far higher than has been generally recognized. These claims must be rejected, and a healthy balance of power must be restored to our republic. Otherwise, the fundamental nature of our democracy may well undergo a radical transformation. For more than two centuries, America's freedoms have been preserved in large part by our founders' wise decision to separate the aggregate power of our government into three co-equal branches, each of which, as you know, serves to check and balance the power of the other two. On more than a few occasions in our history, the dynamic interaction among all three branches has resulted in collisions and temporary impasses that create what are invariably labeled constitutional crises. These crises have often been dangerous and uncertain times for our republic, but in each such case so far, we have found a resolution of the crisis by renewing our common agreement to live together under the rule of law. The principal alternative to democracy throughout history has, of course, been the consolidation of virtually all state power in the hands of a single strong man or small group who 
exercise that power without the informed consent of the governed. It was in revolt against just such a regime, after all, that America was founded. When Lincoln declared at the time of our greatest crisis that the ultimate question being decided in the Civil War was, in his memorable phrase, whether that nation or any nation so conceived and so dedicated can long endure. He was not only saving our union, he was recognizing the fact that democracies are rare in history, and when they fall, as did Athens, the Roman Republic, upon whose designs our founders drew heavily. What emerges in their place is another strongman regime. There have, of course, been other periods in American history when the executive branch claimed new powers later seen as excessive and mistaken. Our second president, John Adams, passed the infamous Alien and Sedition Acts and sought to silence and imprison critics and political opponents. And when his successor, President Thomas Jefferson, eliminated the abuses in his first inaugural, he said, the essential principles of our government form, the bright constellation which has gone before us and guided our steps through an age of revolution and reformation. Should we wander from them in moments of error or of alarm, let us hasten to retrace our steps and regain that road which alone leads to peace, liberty, and safety. <laughs> President Lincoln, of course, suspended habeas corpus during the Civil War, and some of the worst abuses prior to those of the current administration were committed by President Wilson during and after World War I with the notorious Red Scare and Palmer Raids. The internment of Japanese Americans during World War II marked a shameful low point for the respect of individual rights at the hands of the executive. And of course, during the Vietnam War, the notorious COINTELPRO program was part and parcel of those abuses experienced by Dr. King and so many thousands of others. But in each of these cases throughout American history, when the conflict and turmoil subsided, our nation recovered its equilibrium and absorbed the lessons learned in a recurring cycle of excess and regret. But there are reasons for concern this time around, that conditions may be changing so that this cycle may not repeat itself. For one thing, we have for decades been witnessing the slow and steady accumulation of presidential power in a globe where there are nuclear weapons and Cold War tensions. Congress and the American people accepted ever-enlarging spheres of presidential initiative to conduct intelligence and counterintelligence activities and allocate our military forces on the global stage. When military force has been used as an instrument of foreign policy or in response to humanitarian demands, it has almost always been as the result of presidential initiative and leadership. But as Justice Frankfurter wrote in that famous steel seizure case, the accretion of dangerous power does not come in a day. It does come however slowly 
from the generative force of unchecked disregard of the restrictions that fence in even the most disinterested assertion of authority. A second reason to believe that we may be experiencing something new outside that historical cycle is that we are, after all, told by this administration that the war footing upon which he has tried to place the country is going to last, in their phrase, for the rest of our lives. And so we are told that the conditions of national threat that have been used by other presidents to justify arrogations of power will, in this case, persist in near perpetuity. Third, we need to be keenly aware of the startling advances in the sophistication of eavesdropping and surveillance technologies with their capacity to easily sweep up and analyze enormous quantities of information and then mine it for intelligence. And this adds significant vulnerability to the privacy and freedom of enormous numbers of innocent people at the same time as the potential power of those technologies grows. Those technologies do have the potential for shifting the balance of power between the apparatus of the state and the freedom of the individual in ways that are both subtle and profound. Don't misunderstand me. The threat of additional terror strikes is real and the concerted efforts by terrorists to acquire weapons of mass destruction does indeed create a real imperative to exercise the powers of the executive branch with swiftness and agility. Moreover, there is in fact an inherent power conferred by the Constitution to any president to take unilateral action when necessary to protect the nation from a sudden and immediate threat. And it is simply not possible to precisely define in legalistic terms exactly when that power is appropriate and when it is not. But the existence of that inherent power cannot be used to justify a gross and excessive power grab lasting for many years and producing a serious imbalance in the relationship between the executive and the other two branches of government. And there is There is a final reason to worry that we may be experiencing something more than just another cycle. This administration has come to power in the thrall of a legal theory that aims to convince us that this excessive concentration of presidential power is exactly what our Constitution intended. This legal theory, which its proponents call the theory of the unitary executive, but which ought to be more accurately described as the unilateral executive, threatens to expand the president's powers until the contours of the Constitution that the framers actually gave us become obliterated beyond all recognition. Under this theory, the president's authority when acting as commander-in-chief or when making foreign policy cannot be reviewed by the judiciary cannot be checked by Congress. And President Bush has pushed the implications of this idea to its maximum. 
by continually stressing his role as commander-in-chief, invoking it as frequently as he can, conflating it with his other roles, both domestic and foreign. And when added to the idea that we have entered a perpetual state of war, the implications of this theory stretch quite literally as far into the future as we can imagine. This effort to rework America's carefully balanced constitutional design into a lopsided structure dominated by an all-powerful executive branch with a subservient Congress and subservient judiciary is ironically accompanied by an effort by the same administration to rework America's foreign policy from one that is based primarily on U.S. moral authority into one that is based on a misguided and self-defeating effort to establish a form of dominance in the world. And the common denominator... denominator seems to be based on an instinct to intimidate and control. The same pattern has characterized the effort to silence dissenting views within the executive branch, to censor information that may be inconsistent with its stated ideological goals, and to demand conformity from all executive branch employees. For example, CIA analysts who strongly disagreed with the White House assertion that Osama bin Laden was linked to Saddam Hussein found themselves under pressure at work and became fearful of losing promotions and salary increases. Ironically, that is exactly what happened to the FBI officials in the 1960s who disagreed with J. Edgar Hoover's assertion that Martin Luther King was closely connected to communists. The head of the FBI's domestic intelligence division testified that his effort to tell the truth about Dr. King's innocence of the charge resulted in he and his colleagues becoming isolated within the FBI and pressured, and I quote, it was evident, he said, that we had to change our ways or we would all be out on the street. The men and I, he continued, discussed how to get out of trouble. To be in trouble with Mr. Hoover was a serious matter. These men, he continued, were trying to buy homes, mortgages on homes, had children in school. They lived in fear of getting transferred, losing money on their homes, as they usually did. So they wanted another memorandum written to get us out of the trouble that we were in. The Constitution's framers who studied human nature so closely understood this dilemma quite well. As Alexander Hamilton put it, a power over a man's support is a power over his will. In any case, quite soon there was no more difference of opinion about Dr. King within the FBI, and the false accusation became the unanimous view. And in exactly the same way, George Tenet's CIA eventually joined in endorsing a manifestly false view. There was a linkage between al-Qaeda and the government of Iraq. In the words of George Orwell, 
we are all capable, he said, of believing things which we know to be untrue, and then when we are finally proved wrong, impudently twisting the facts so as to show that we were right. Intellectually, it is possible to carry on this process for an indefinite time. The only check on it is that sooner or later, a false belief bumps up against solid reality, usually on a battlefield. 2,200 American soldiers have lost their lives as this false belief bumped into a solid reality. And indeed, whenever power is unchecked and unaccountable, it almost inevitably leads to gross mistakes and abuses. That is part of human nature. In the absence of rigorous accountability, incompetence flourishes. Dishonesty is encouraged and rewarded. It is human nature, whether for Republicans or Democrats or people of any set of views. Last week, last week, for example, Vice President Cheney attempted to defend the administration's eavesdropping on American citizens by saying that if it had conducted this program prior to 9-11, they would have found out the names of some of the hijackers. Tragically, he apparently still does, does not know that the administration did, in fact, have the names of at least two of the hijackers well before 9-11 and had available to them information that could have led to the identification of most of the others. One of them was in the phone book. And yet, because of incompetence, unaccountable incompetence in the handling of this information, it was never used to protect the American people. It is often the case, again, regardless of which party might be in power, that an executive branch beguiled by the pursuit of unchecked power responds to its own mistakes by reflexively proposing that it be given still more power. Often the request itself is used to mask accountability for mistakes in the use of power it already has. Moreover, if the pattern of practice begun by this administration is not challenged, it may well become a permanent part of the American system. That is why many conservatives have pointed out that granting unchecked power to this president means that the next will have unchecked power as well. And the next may be someone whose values and beliefs you do not trust. And that is why Republicans as well as Democrats should be concerned with what this president has done. If his attempt to dramatically expand executive power goes unquestioned, then our constitutional design of checks and balances will be lost. And the next president or some future president will be able, in the name of national security, to restrict our liberties in a way the framers would never have imagined possible. This same instinct to expand power and establish dominance has characterized the relationship between this administration and the courts and the Congress. In a properly functioning system, the judicial branch would serve as the constitutional umpire to ensure that the branches of government observe their proper spheres of authority. 
observe civil liberties, adhere to the rule of law. Unfortunately, the unilateral executive has tried hard to thwart the ability of the judiciary to call balls and strikes by keeping controversies out of its hands, notably those challenging its ability to detain individuals without legal process by appointing judges who will be deferential to its exercise of power and by its support of assaults on the independence of the third branch. The, the president's decision, for example, to ignore the FISA law was a direct assault on the power of the judges who sit on that court. Congress established the FISA court precisely to be a check on executive power to wiretap. And yet, to ensure that the court could not function as a check on executive power, the president simply did not take matters to it and did not even let the court know that it was being bypassed. The president's judicial appointments are clearly designed to ensure the courts will not serve as an effective check on executive power. As we have all learned, Judge Alito is a longtime supporter of a powerful executive, a supporter of that so-called unitary executive. Whether you support his confirmation or not, and I respect the fact that some of the co-sponsors of this event do, I do not. But whatever your view, we must all agree that he will not vote as an effective check on the expansion of executive power. Likewise, Chief Justice Roberts has made plain his deference to the expansion of executive power through his support of judicial deference to executive agency rulemaking. And the administration has also supported the assault on judicial independence that has been conducted largely in Congress. That assault includes a threat by the majority in the Senate to permanently change the rules to eliminate the right of the minority to engage in extended debate of the president's nominees. The assault has extended to legislative efforts to curtail the jurisdiction of the courts in matters ranging from habeas corpus to the Pledge of Allegiance. In short, the administration has demonstrated a contempt for the judicial role and sought to evade judicial review of its actions at every turn. But the most serious damage in our constitutional framework has been to the legislative branch. The sharp decline of congressional power and autonomy in recent years has been almost as shocking as the efforts by the executive to attain this massive expansion of its power. I was elected to the Congress in 1976, served eight years in the House, eight in the Senate, presided over the Senate for eight as vice president. Before that, as a young man, I saw the Congress firsthand as the son of a senator. My, my father was elected to Congress in 1938, 10 years before I was born and left the Senate after I had graduated from college. The Congress we have today is structurally unrecognizable compared to the one in which my father served. There are many distinguished and outstanding senators and congressmen serving today. I, I am honored to know them and to have worked with them. But the legislative branch of government as a whole, under its current 
leadership now operates as if it were entirely subservient to the executive branch. It is astonishing to me and so foreign to what the Congress is supposed to be. Moreover, too many members of the House and Senate now feel compelled to spend a majority of their time not in thoughtful debate on the issues, but instead raising money to purchase 30-second television commercials. Moreover, there have now been two or three generations of congressmen who don't really know what an oversight hearing is. In the 70s and 80s, the oversight hearings in which my colleagues and I participated held the feet of the executive branch to the fire, no matter which party was in power. And yet oversight is almost unknown in the Congress today. The role of the authorization committees has declined into insignificance. The 13 annual appropriations bills are hardly ever actually passed as bills anymore. Often everything is lumped into a familiar single giant measure that sometimes is not even available for members of Congress to even read before they vote on it. Members of the minority party are now routinely excluded from conference committees and amendments are routinely disallowed during floor consideration of legislation. In the United States Senate, which used to pride itself on being the greatest deliberative body in the world, meaningful debate is now a rarity. Even on the eve of the fateful vote to authorize the invasion of Iraq, Senator Robert Byrd famously asked, why is this chamber empty? In the House of Representatives, the number who face a genuinely competitive election contest every two years is typically less than a dozen out of 435. And too many incumbents have come to believe that the key to continued access to the money for re-election is to stay on the good side of those who have the money to give. And in the case of the majority party, the whole process is largely controlled by the incumbent president and his political organization, so the willingness of Congress to challenge the executive branch is further limited when the same party controls both Congress and the administration. The executive branch time and again has co-opted Congress's role, and too often Congress has been a willing accomplice in the surrender of its own power. Look, for example, at the congressional role in overseeing this massive four-year eavesdropping campaign that on its face seemed so clearly to violate the Bill of Rights. The President says he informed Congress. What he really means is that he talked with the Chairman and Ranking Member of the House and Senate Intelligence Committees and sometimes the leaders of the House and Senate. This small group in turn claims they were not given the full facts, though at least one of the committee leaders and wrote a letter of concern to the Vice President. And though I sympathize with the awkward position, the difficult position in which these men and women were placed, I, I cannot disagree with the Liberty Coalition when it says that Democrats as well as Republicans in the Congress must share the blame for not taking sufficient action to protest and seek to prevent what they consider a grossly unconstitutional program. Many did. Moreover, 
in the Congress as a whole, both House and Senate, the enhanced role of money in the re-election process, coupled with the sharply diminished role for reasoned deliberation and debate, has produced an atmosphere conducive to pervasive institutionalized corruption that some have fallen vulnerable to. The Abramoff scandal is but the tip of a giant iceberg threatening the integrity of our legislative branch of government. And it is the pitiful state of our legislative branch which primarily explains the failure of our vaunted checks and balances to prevent the dangerous overreach by the executive branch now threatening a radical transformation of the American system. I call upon members of Congress in both parties to uphold your oath of office and defend the Constitution. Stop going along to get along. Start acting like the independent and co-equal branch of American government that you are supposed to be under the Constitution of our country. yet another player. There is yet another constitutional player whose pulse must also be taken and whose role must be examined in order to understand the dangerous imbalance that has accompanied these efforts by the executive branch to dominate our constitutional system. We the people collectively are still the key to the survival of America's democracy. We must examine ourselves. We, as Lincoln put it, even we here, must examine our own role as citizens in allowing and not preventing the shocking decay and hollowing out and degradation of American democracy. It is time to stand up for the American system that we know and love. It is time to breathe new life back into America's democracy. Thomas Jefferson said, an informed citizenry is the only true repository of the public will. America's based on the belief that we can govern ourselves and exercise the power of self-government. American idea proceeded the bedrock principle that all just power is derived from the consent of the governed. The intricate and finely balanced system now in such danger was created with the full and widespread participation of the population as a whole. The Federalist Papers were back in the day, widely read newspaper essays, and they represented only one of 24 series of essays that crowded the vibrant marketplace of ideas in which farmers and shopkeepers recapitulated the debates that played out so fruitfully in Philadelphia. And when the convention had done its best, it was the people in their various states that refused to confirm the result until at their insistence the Bill of Rights was made integral to the documents sent forward for ratification. And it is we, the people, who must now find once again the ability we once had 
to play an integral role in saving our Constitution. And here there is cause for both concern and for great hope. The age of printed pamphlets and political essays has long since been replaced by television, a distracting and absorbing medium which seems determined to entertain and sell more than it informs and educates. Lincoln's memorable call during the Civil War is now applicable in a new way to our present dilemma. We must disenthrall ourselves, he said, and then we shall save our country. Forty years have passed since the majority of Americans adopted television as their principal source of information, and its dominance has now become so extensive that virtually all significant political communication now takes place within the confines of flickering 30-second television advertisements, and they're not the Federalist Papers. The political economy, supported by these short but expensive television ads, is as different from the vibrant politics of America's first century as those politics were different from the feudalism and its pride on the ignorance of the masses of people in the dark ages. The constricted role of ideas in the American political system today has encouraged efforts by the executive branch to believe it can and should control the flow of information as a means of controlling the outcome of important decisions that still lie in the hands of the people. The administration vigorously asserts its power to maintain secrecy in its operations. After all, if the other branches don't know what's happening, they can't be a check or a balance. For example, when the administration was attempting to persuade Congress to enact the Medicare prescription drug benefit, many in the House and Senate raised concerns about the cost and design of the program, but rather than engaging in open debate on the basis of factual data, the administration withheld facts and actively prevented the Congress from hearing testimony that it had sought from the principal administration expert who had the information showing in advance of the vote that indeed the true cost estimates were far beyond the numbers given to Congress by the president. And the workings of the program would play out very differently than Congress had been told. Deprived of that information and believing the false numbers given to it instead, the Congress approved the program and tragically the entire initiative is now collapsing all over the country with the administration making an appeal just this weekend asking major insurance companies to volunteer to bail it out. But the American people who have a right to believe that its elected representatives will learn the truth and act on the basis of knowledge and utilize the rule of reason have been let down. To take another example, scientific warnings about the catastrophic consequences of unchecked global warming were censored by a political appointee in the White House with no scientific training whatsoever. Today, one of the most distinguished scientific experts in the world on global warming, who works in NASA, has been ordered not to talk to members of the press, ordered to keep a careful log 
of everyone he meets with, so that the executive branch can monitor and control what he shares of his knowledge about global warming. This is a planetary crisis. We owe ourselves a truthful and reasoned discussion. One of the other ways the administration... One of the other ways the administration has tried to control the flow of information has been by consistently resorting to the language and politics of fear in order to short-circuit the debate and drive its agenda forward without regard to the evidence or the public interest. President Eisenhower said this, any who act as if freedom's defenses are to be found in suppression and suspicion and fear confess a doctrine that is alien to America. Fear drives out reason. Fear suppresses the politics of discourse and opens the door to the politics of destruction. Justice Brandeis once wrote, men feared witches and burnt women. The founders of our country faced dire threats. If they failed in their endeavors, they would have been hung as traitors. The, the very existence of our country was at risk, yet in the teeth of those dangers, they insisted on establishing the full Bill of Rights. Is our Congress today in more danger than were their predecessors when the British Army was marching on the Capitol? Is the world more dangerous than when we faced an ideological enemy with tens of thousands of nuclear missiles ready to be launched on a moment's notice to completely annihilate the country? Is America really in more danger now that when we face worldwide fascism on the march, when, when the last generation had to fight and win two world wars simultaneously, it is simply an insult to those who came before us and sacrificed so much on our behalf to imply that we have more to be fearful of than they did. And yet they faithfully protected our freedom and now it's up to us to do the very same thing. the duty of America to defend our citizens' right, not only to life, but also to liberty and the pursuit of happiness. It is therefore vital in our current circumstances that immediate steps be taken to safeguard our Constitution against the present danger posed by the intrusive overreaching on the part of the executive branch and the president's apparent belief that he need, need not live under the rule of law. I endorse the words of Bob Barr when he said, and I quote, the president has dared the American people to do something about it for the sake of the Constitution. I hope they will. A special counsel should be immediately appointed by the Attorney General to remedy the obvious conflict of interest that prevents him from investigating what many believe are serious violations of law by the President. We've had a fresh demonstration of how an independent 
investigation by a special counsel with integrity can rebuild confidence in our system of justice. Patrick Fitzgerald has, by all accounts, shown neither fear nor favor in pursuing allegations that the executive branch has violated other laws. Republican, as well as Democratic members of Congress, should support the bipartisan call of the Liberty Coalition for the appointment of this special counsel to pursue the criminal issues raised by the warrantless wiretapping of Americans by the President, and it should be a political issue in any race, regardless of party, section of the country, House of Congress, for anyone who opposes the appointment of a special counsel under these dangerous circumstances when our Constitution is at risk. Secondly, new whistleblower protection should immediately be established for members of the executive branch who report evidence of wrongdoing, especially where it involves abuse of authority in the sensitive areas of national security. Third, both houses of Congress should, of course, hold comprehensive and not just superficial hearings into these serious allegations of criminal behavior on the part of the president, and they should follow the evidence wherever it leads. Fourth, the extensive new powers requested by the executive branch in its proposal to extend and enlarge the Patriot Act should under no circumstances be granted unless and until there are adequate and enforceable safeguards to protect the Constitution and the rights of the American people against the kinds of abuses that have so recently been revealed. Fifth, any telecommunications company that has provided the government with access to private information concerning the communications of Americans without a proper warrant should immediately cease and desist their complicity in this apparently illegal invasion of the privacy of American citizens. Freedom of communication is an essential prerequisite for the restoration of the health of our democracy. It is particularly important that the freedom of the internet be protected against either the encroachment of government or efforts at control by large media conglomerates. The future of our democracy depends on it. In closing, I mentioned that along with cause for concern, there is reason for hope. As I stand here today, I am filled with optimism that America is on the eve of a golden age in which the vitality of our democracy will be reestablished by the people and will flourish more vibrantly than ever. Indeed, I can feel it in this moment. As Dr. King once said, perhaps a new spirit is rising among us. If it is, let us trace its movements and pray that our own inner being may be sensitive to its guidance, for we are deeply in need of a new way beyond the darkness that seems so close around us. Thank you very much.
Pieces.